Exodus chapter 11, various parts from 11 to chapter 13. I'll let you know where the verse, what verses we, we read as we change, but we're starting with verse 1 from chapter 11, and it's about the last plague, that horrible event in history but event within a purpose, of course. Okay, from verse 1 then of chapter 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh, on Egypt, and after that he will let you go home from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt, every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, and all the people will follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of the country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year, until the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there that there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, Eat it in haste, it's the Lord's Passover. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. But on the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. 
And then we go to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country for otherwise they said we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing, clothing, clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they had asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. And then we look at verse 50, the same chapter. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron and on that very day the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. And the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Hivites and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. Thanks, Steve. just want to uh, assure you I didn't choose the length of these passages. It's all Carl's fault. That sounds a little bit like the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. (laughs) Blame shifting. I wonder, have you ever um, experienced a significant rescue in your life? Perhaps you're in a situation of danger and you've experienced rescue from that danger. There's an experience that stands out in my mind of that happening. I recall a terrifying experience as a child in Townsville. I was wading on a beach on Magnetic Islands, about eight kilometres off the coast from Townsville, and uh, I was over there with my family, and I got out of my depth. It's a fairly steep beach, and what I didn't understand was that as, as the tide came in, there was an undertow and it would slide quite strongly back down the beach. So I started uh, going out in the water and getting a bit brave. I couldn't really swim at this stage. After what's about to happen, my parents sent me off for swimming lessons. But I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I just ventured out into the water and I got a bit deeper and a bit deeper, but the water started to sort of lift me up, and I I wound up on my tiptoes, and then I was going like this, 
and I was just going further down. I could feel the toe of the water. It was just pulling me further out away from the shore. And it's a horrible, horrible feeling. And you realize you're powerless. You're swept along by a force stronger than yourself. And I started sort of trying to flap my arms and, and I was taking on board water. And fortunately, my father could see what was happening and he raced in and rescued me and dragged me back to shore. And I'll never forget the enormous sense of relief sitting wrapped on my towel in the warm sand, wriggling my toes in the warm sand, looking out over that beautiful water and feeling so thankful to be high and dry, so thankful to be away from that, that power that just sort of swept me along and especially being able to breathe freely again. Today in Exodus, we see the Lord completing his rescue mission of Israel. And he is telling Israel how to show their gratitude, how to demonstrate their gratefulness for his rescue. No doubt they also experienced a huge sense of relief. You think of these waves of plagues coming over. And then this final one, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And how immensely grateful they must have felt to be spared all of that. And God didn't actually expect Israel to lift a finger. They, as it were, could watch safely from the beach, wriggle their toes in the sand and watch Israel drown. Uh, sorry, watch Egypt drown. And God didn't ask them to go to their rescue. All they had to do was ask the Egyptians for some silver and gold and clothing. Now you think about that. That's a, that's a massive thing to do. Now there's so much in today's reading, but I believe that I can give you a very simple overview of it. Chapter 11 recounts that tenth and final plague, the death of all firstborn males in Egypt. That was that final event. Chapter, sorry, yeah, so that's chapter 11. Chapter 12 recounts the institution of that yearly Passover and the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. So on the 10th day of the first month of the year, they were to take a lamb, a lamb for a household. If, if it was a small family, then they were to join with another small family and share a lamb between them. They were to feed that lamb. This is a bit gruesome for us in our politically correct uh, day and age. They were to feed that lamb and look after it for the next four days. And on the 14th day, they were to kill and cook the lamb. And when they killed it and before they cooked it whole, they were to take some of the blood and sprinkle it up over the gates and the doorposts of their homes. Then would begin from that 14th day, seven days, known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that they were to not eat any bread with yeast in it. And they weren't to do any work other than just basic preparation day by day. And it was a festival to the Lord commemorating God's deliverance of Israel. So... Exodus 12 is about that and the regulations associated with it so that Israel would perpetually remember this event. That's the main point to bear in mind. They were to do this year after year after year. And so significant was this event that it actually defined Israel. Their calendar began with this first event. This was the first month of the year. Then Exodus 13 details how God would require Israel to consecrate back to him all their firstborn of human beings and of animals to the Lord. And it was to be a constant reminder that God had mercifully spared their firstborn sons. Now, out of all of that, I believe there's four things that the Lord wants us to take home from these chapters. The, the take-home value for us is 
we're in a spiritual battle with false gods. Who wins makes all the difference for us. God's victory is to define our entire life and God plans his victory to be for everyone. So we're going to have a look at that and look at each one in turn. First of all, we're in a spiritual battle with false gods. And this is a point that's often not understood in this chapter. The plagues were a battle for supremacy between Egypt's gods and the Lord God of Israel. Each plague was directed against one of Egypt's many gods. So they had the sun god Ra, so they had plague of darkness. Pharaoh himself was regarded as the divine man. So when the firstborn of Israel, uh, or the firstborn were killed, Pharaoh lost his firstborn son, his heir to be the next divine man on earth. So look at Exodus 12, verse 12. It says this. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. This was a power encounter. This was a spiritual battle between the Lord and the false gods of Egypt. Numbers 33 reinforces this and it says, The Israelites set out from Ramses on the 15th day of the first month. Remember the Passover was on that 14th day. They marched out defiantly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. On their gods. The Egyptians had many gods. So the plague of blood defeated the river gods of the Nile by killing everything in the river. The locusts defeated the field gods of the harvest by eating all the harvest. Pharaoh was known as the son of light, but the plague of darkness turned off the light. And Pharaoh was powerless to reverse God's sovereign action. So when the Lord struck down the firstborn, he was actually striking at, at the root of succession for Israel's gods and their false worship. And we need to understand we're still in a spiritual battle. We have false gods all around us in our culture. What Israel encountered in Egypt, we also encounter in our day and generation. The names and titles might differ, but the issue is exactly the same. Nothing is new under the sun. The idols of sex, money, materialism, the body beautiful, lust, fame, power and control, and lately the, the latest false god on the block is gender identity. Everywhere around us, these things are calling out to us. Our media is saturated with it. Watching too much TV can be spiritually hazardous. Or spending lots of time on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram and the like are hazardous for our spiritual health because it's just all around us. People have bought into living as if we are the centre of the universe as if the whole world revolves around pleasing ourselves. And we're absolutely plagued by things that are designed to assault our conscience and corrupt any noble desires in our hearts. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to be on Facebook. I'm not saying it's wrong to use these apps. I'm saying be very, very careful about how you engage with those things because like me in the water, you can be sucked out beyond your depth. And I'll, I'll come back to that. I don't know how long it's going to take for me to learn that channel surfing is an unwise habit. Anyone identify with this? It is really not good. But on Friday, I discovered a channel on SBS called Viceland and it didn't twig with me until I started to watch this program. I'm not going to go into details with the program because it's not healthy. 
uh, gradually I realised they have labelled a whole channel called Vice Land. What does that tell us about what's going on around us? In our, I didn't realise this. Vice Land. The land of vice. I discovered, apparently, I, I, I Googled it. I found on Wikipedia that it focuses on lifestyle-orientated documentaries and reality series aimed at millennials, people born since the year 2000. So it's aimed at our young people. This whole channel is dedicated towards hooking in young people. And if Friday night sample is anything to go by, it's spiritually toxic, utterly toxic. 1 Corinthians 10, 21 to 23 warns us, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. I can assure you watching Viceland or channel surfing is definitely not spiritually constructive. No wonder Philippians 4 verses 8 and 9 urge us, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. How we think, what we give our minds to, can affect whether or not the God of peace is with us or not. So note that last bit. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The Lord had put a distinction between Israel and Egypt between Israel's one true God, the living God, and Egypt's false gods. And we must not forget that we're in this spiritual battle. Plan to learn from the example of those who've learned how to fight the good fight of faith and ever prove victorious. That's why we have elders and pastors and teachers and, and why God urges such people to watch their life and doctrine closely because others are watching your life and doctrine closely too. Parents, your children will watch your habits on TV. They'll watch what you watch. They will observe how you respond. They, they will quickly figure out what you value how you spend your time, where you go, what you read. These things young eyes are looking at and they can influence to either drag someone further out, deeper under the water or lead toward the God of peace. Which way are you leading? What example are you setting? Because, and this is where the next thing cuts in, who wins makes all the difference. This tenth plague became Israel's defining moment. Think about it. After the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh finally agreed to all Moses' terms for Israel's release. Moses could probably scarcely believe his ears. Free at last. And God told them to set their calendar by this. This shall be to you the first month of the year. So Israel's calendar was not to be taken from Egypt. God was going to give them his own calendar that began with redemption, 
that began with God's sovereign act of victory over Egypt, buying them back, redeeming them, and saving a people for himself. So they were to begin each year with the remembrance of Passover. It defined who they were. Later on, when God gave the law, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So it defined their statutes. It was to govern their conscience. God's redemption was to be all-encompassing for Israel. It defined them and gave them their unique identity as God's people. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So Passover was held on that evening of the 14th day of the first month. So two weeks into the new year, and then the next seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread ran. So by the end of three weeks into their new year, they've celebrated Passover and a seven-day festival of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Their year was governed by this cycle. Passover involved death, an unblemished lamb, and they were told, when your children ask you, why are we doing this? You're to say to them, this is what happened to us in Egypt. This is a reminder to us. We begin each year with remembering that God spared our lives when we took his word to heart and acted on it and sprinkled the blood over the gateposts of our house. And the destroying angel of the Lord, when he saw that blood on our homes, he spared us. But the Egyptians who didn't take him at his word, the destroying angel came in and killed all the firstborn. And the children would go, wow. And this was year after year after year of teaching the children by example, by a living, embodied reenactment of the Passover, that God was their God. And this defined who they were. Nothing could be left over and eaten the next day, and it was to be eaten in haste. Unleavened bread involved baking bread without yeast and eating it in haste with their staff at their side. And it was this mini reenactment that served to reinforce to Israel time after time after time, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as, as they do in the land of Egypt. And you shall not do as they do in the land of promise to which I'm sending you. But you shall be careful to observe my statutes and commandments. I am the Lord your God. I wonder what you take on board to define your life. How do you define your existence? Think about it. How is our calendar divided? BC, AD, before Christ, and Anno Domini, which is Latin for the year of our Lord. So the calendar we operate by operates by time before Christ and time since Christ, the years of our Lord since his coming. Have you thought about that? It should not surprise us that the forces of darkness don't like this and want to call it now BCE, before the common era, and just cut the name of Christ out. Remove these things from the calendar. Think about it. What are the two main uh, holidays in our year? Christmas and Easter. It's, it's no, it should not surprise us that the forces of darkness want to introduce Easter bunnies and Santa Claus and Christmas trees to obscure the message, to bury it. Because deep down, it's a battle of the gods. It's a battle it's a spiritual battle behind these things and our calendar, the, the, the things that, that we take on board through which we think about time, through which we mark our days, are meant to remind us of the Lord God who made the heavens and the earth. 
that forces opposed to this are not happy. So now it's happy holidays, not Merry Christmas. Well, happy Easter and, and Easter bunnies and hot cross buns and Easter eggs and that sort of thing. But we don't have to fear these changes. God is in control like he was in control with Israel. Our pharaohs too will yield to the Lord. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is at work. The work he's begun, he will complete. We know from the book of Revelation that victory belongs to the Lord. And, and as Egypt had, as Israel took on board this tenth plague where God demonstrated his complete victory over Egypt, we are to take on board the complete victory we have through our Lord Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God's victory is meant to define our entire life. This tenth and final victory was to be etched into Israel's collective mind like a sign. Israel was required to devote or consecrate to God all their firstborn males. So Passover was an annual thing, but whenever there was a birth, especially the birth of a son, that firstborn son and all the firstborn of their livestock, whether donkeys or camels or whatever, were to be dedicated to the Lord. So constant reminders between Passover, the cycle of birth, the first belongs to God. The same with the harvest. The first fruits of your harvest belong to God. The principle that's coming through is, I define your existence. You belong to me. I am your God. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, but the jealous God, jealous for his glory. And he wants his people to know that and to live by that. So these signs were, were literally signs. If you read through in chapter 13, we're told time after time here, signs. Look at verse 3. Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of their land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Verse 9, this observance will be for you like a sign. On your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Verse 16. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So again, when, when the children ask, Dad, why are we doing this? Why, why are we dedicating the firstborn to the Lord? It was an object lesson. It was, it was a, a golden opportunity to preach the gospel to them, to tell them the Lord God Almighty is the only true God and he redeemed us out of Egypt. We have opportunities like this to teach our children, to teach the generation to come the ways of the Lord. Let me put it to you like this. What defines our identity as Christians? Surely it's more than just going to church or saying prayers or singing hymns or doing outward Christian activities. Surely it's the fact that we're not our own, but we're bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God with our bodies. Surely it's so we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to the Lord, because that blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And be re we are renewed in the spirit of our mind, so that we can test what the Lord's will is, his good, acceptable and pleasing will, his acceptable worship. These are the things that mark us as Christians 
that we belong to Jesus. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us too, written to Corinth in Greece, not to Jews. Don't tether your identity to your body and tattoo it or pamper it or starve it or stuff it or harm it or despise it. You're more than your body. It's not your body. The body is perishing, but the inner man's being renewed day by day. It's the mood of our age to identify yourself with your body, to take on board my gender is different from my sexual, uh, how, you know, how I was born at birth, and I'm taking on a new identity as if that's going to make us new people. But all around us, this is the culture we're in. Our culture is saying, you can be whatever you want to be. Your body is your body. And you do what, to it, you, do what you want to it. But don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mould. We don't have to take on board all this new stuff about bi-gender, cis-gender or no-gender or whatever gender you wake up feeling in the morning. Tether your identity to something that lasts, not something as varied as the wind. Take your identity markers from what is permanent. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. This is what defines us. We are Christians. Christians. Think of what 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what defines us. This is what we've got to take to heart. This is what we do when we gather week by week. We reinforce the fact that we belong to the Lord. We are his by grace through faith in his son. This is who we are in Christ. Allow God to immerse your spirit in the truth of Romans 8. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is who we are. This is what is to define us as God's people. Do you see yourself that way? What defines you? What have you taken on board as the identity that's deepest and most meaningful to you? Finally, God plans this victory to be for everyone. There's something really significant here because although God spared Israel and brought them out of Egypt, there was something different about the 10th plague. What God did to the Egyptians was no surprise. But what may be surprising is the way he treated his people Israel in this 10th plague. Like the Egyptians, the Israelites were under a sentence of death. The same night that God brought death to every house in Egypt, he also visited the home of every Israelite with the purpose of killing their firstborn sons. In his mercy, of course, God provided his people with a way to escape his wrath. But first we must reckon with the fact that the destroyer, as God calls him in Exodus 12:23, the destroying angel claimed the right to slay the children of Israel too. All that differentiated them from Egypt was the sprinkled blood. That was the only difference. The Israelites must have been shocked to discover that their lives were in danger. In all the previous plagues, they could sit by and just watch. They were in the land of Goshen when there was darkness in Egypt. They were spared and they had light. 
Their cattle weren't killed. They didn't have hail. They weren't afflicted with locusts and gnats. They just sat by. But with this 10th plague, they were involved personally. They had to act. There was something required of them too. The truth was that they deserved to die every bit as much as their enemies. Indeed, if God had not provided a means for their salvation, they would have suffered the loss of every last one of their firstborn sons as well. The Israelites were as guilty as the Egyptians. And in the final play, God taught them about their sin and his salvation. God's people had sinned in several ways. One was to reject the word of God's prophet. Remember when Moses returned from his first audience with Pharaoh, the Israelites greeted him by saying, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses had to cry out to God, Why have you given me this leadership position? I didn't want it. And the people are complaining and now it's worse than when I started. Neither the Egyptians nor nor the Israelites would listen to God's word. Alec Mottier, a commentator, says this. He says, when the wrath of God is applied in its essential reality, no one is safe. There were two nations in the land of Egypt, but they were both resistant to the word of God. And if God comes in judgment, no one will escape. The wages of sin is death. And since Adam and Eve sinned, there has not been a generation where there has not been death. I no longer have my parents because of death. One day I will be no more. I too am subject to death, the law of sin and death. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our gender identity. No. Through our best, most valiant self-effort. No. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The Israelites were guilty of idolatry, Now at the end of Joshua, Joshua said, throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Their time in Egypt had had just towed them. The undertow was towing them out down the beach over their heads into idolatry. Not surprisingly, they, they shared in, they absorbed a lot of the culture around them. God said, I want you to take this blood and apply it to the doorposts of your homes. You're just as guilty as Egypt. Apart from any other particular sin they may have committed, God's people were sinners by nature. The mere fact of their humanity meant that they participated in the guilt of Adam's race. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The first Passover proved that fact by implicating Israel in Egypt's sin, therefore showing that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. The reason the avenging angel visited the Israelites was because the Egyptians, like the Egyptians, they too were sinners. And a sin is a capital offence. The proper penalty is death. Wow. Wow. This tenth plague was a sign of God's judgment against all humanity, not just Egypt. We each need to feel the force of this in our own hearts. It's easy to sit here and to feel superior to the culture around us. We don't do this, we don't do that, we try to do this, we pay our tithes. Throughout the generations... Whenever God's people have lapsed into thinking that they are better than the nations around them or the culture in which they live, God has had to render judgment. 
All of these things were designed to point us beyond ourselves to the fact that we cannot save ourselves. We're helpless without God. I am the Lord your God. I am your Redeemer. Look to me. When John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins, and he's, he's preaching it in Israel, and he's preaching it to, to a people who are demon-afflicted. Jesus had to cast out demons amongst God's people because they'd been caught up in false idol worship. And he declared to them when he clapped his eyes on Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Passover language. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Since my childhood scare on Magnetic Island, I've found that water isn't the only thing that sucks us in. It can happen through cycling. Ten years ago, I... Um, through my son he said dad let's go cycling and I thought all right something to do with him and before long I was a 50 year old new to the sport keen to prove that I could cut cut it with the best I began training five to six mornings a week leaving home 5:45 a.m riding with a fast young bunch of riders I was keen to pick the brains of the most experienced I learned that the best riders kept logbooks, so for the next five years I diligently kept a logbook. Between August 2010 and November 2015, I can tell you every ride I went on. I nearly brought the book with me, but that's beside the, the, the point. Where I went, how I felt, what the wind conditions were like, my average speed, maximum speed, total distance, number of calories burned, how much I slept the night before. In one 12-month period, I know, because I can verify it, I averaged 270 kilometres a week. That's over 14,000 kilometres in a year. I began to race, first on Tuesdays, with bums on seats, it's called, from character bishops born and back, and then on Saturday afternoons with Cycling Australia, and we'd be all over the northern part of the state. I upgraded my bike, I bought lighter and faster wheels, I lost 13 kilos. But I had some accidents. No broken bones, fortunately, but skin off, and it was painful and inconvenient. And then I... Because I didn't stretch enough or allow my body enough time to recover, I developed sciatica. Extremely painful. I couldn't ride. Also, because I pushed my body so hard, my immune system took a battering. I was susceptible to every cold that was going round. Some days I felt so dog-tired that I could hardly drag myself around. At one stage, my blood pressure became so low, if I stood up too quickly, I'd get giddy. And the penny dropped with me. It was during a ride. Beautiful morning. And I thought, pushing myself like this was doing me as much harm as good. Cycling itself is good, but too much cycling has side effects that are not good. And it's not as though I was aiming for the Olympics or anything like that. I'd been sucked in too far and I had a decision to make. I decided that if my goal was to keep fit, then cycling had to be my servant, not my master. So now I only ride two or three times a week. I don't keep a logbook. I enjoy the scenery. I'm more focused on engaging with the other riders for the sake of the gospel and learning from them about tips for riding. Even though I'm not as fit as I was, I've regained a bit of the weight. You know, I've put on a fair bit of the 13 kilos again. I'm still reasonably fit. And I haven't had any more trouble with sciatica. I don't stress about trying to better my averages. I ride because I want to, not because I have to. I'm praying for those I ride with that they will come to know Jesus too. The words of 2 Peter 2.19 ring in my ears. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Let me ask you, what is mastering you? If it isn't the Lord, it will be something else or someone else. 
What have you given yourself to? What defines you? My identity is no longer I am a cyclist. My identity is I am a Christian. I belong to Jesus and I happen to do a bit of cycling. By sovereign grace, I'm among the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. My identity stems from belonging to Jesus who called me for his own, not because I can perform in a particular way. What about you? What defines you? Have you tasted the seductive power of the culture around you, the false gods that are whispering your name and that are sucking you in and sucking you under? Will you stand against these things and say, I am going to serve Jesus. Choose this day whom you will serve. How does does God's passing over you in judgment due to Christ's shed blood, now shape your identity. Think about it. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you that you are the living and the true God. You have existed from all eternity and you were around all those thousands of years ago in the time of Egypt and you're still our God today. Truly there is none like you. Pharaoh has come and gone and his firstborn son went centuries ago. Father, my parents have gone and one one day too I will be dust. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that though the outer man is perishing, the inner man can be renewed day by day by your spirit, by your grace. Open our hearts and minds to these things, Lord. Open our our eyes to see the wonder of you, the truth of the gospel, that we would buy the truth and not sell it, that we would hang it as a garland around our neck, that we would bind it on our foreheads and it would shape our, our movement, the movements of our hands and where we walk and what we do, that we will be a people who are marked out as belonging to Jesus. Thank you for such a great salvation that you have supplied through no asking or deserving of our own. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Blessed be your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen.